Hello and welcome to the Remaining Sane, Finding Peace in Our Chaos podcast, a podcast about both theology and police work. I'm your host, Will. And in today's episode, I interview a philosophy professor in the Honors Department at Union University, Dr. Justin Barnard. Dr. Barnard, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Good. Uh, One of the things that I wanted to discuss with you is a topic of nihilism. So this is something that I've talked about beforehand, where really this can be any profession, but I think especially with police officers, if we find our meaning, which is something we've talked about before, our telos, our, our purpose in life, in police work, and then we continue to do the same, arrest the same person over and over, or we continue to deal with the same problems over and over, it can make someone nihilistic. And I, I believe that's, that's one of the downfalls of really any job, but I think especially police work um, can fall into that because as we've talked about before in, our, in this show, um, the police work itself in some ways, like the military um, or even uh, some other emergency responders, is kind of unique in so much as there are appearances of religious elements inside of police work, um, such as, you know, we have a hall of the dead or we have fallen officers that we um, honor, or we've got relics, um, such as I've talked about before, we have the duty belt of a police officer that's fallen live duty um, in our, in our police station. And, one of the the pitfalls around that is when we find our meaning in police work, right? And then we do the same thing over and over, but we're still not making any progress. And it feels like it's just becoming the cycle and we're not finding meaning. Um, And you, from what I understand, have studied a lot about nihilism. So um, I wanted to uh, just kind of get into that. If um, so starting with that, how would you define nihilism what is it yeah that's a great first question uh if you didn't ask that question i think that's where i was going to go at the very beginning um so uh let, let me start by saying um i think this is just fantastic that you're talking about these things and you're especially talking and thinking about these things with your fellow officers and <clears throat> i'm hoping that i can talk about them in ways which will be meaningful and and helpful for the kinds of things you're trying to accomplish in this program um and I do think it's a it's a huge question to to ask like what are we talking about when we're talking about nihilism? Let me actually before I answer that question, let me back up just a moment. Um, philosophers like to do that. That's one of the hazards of being a philosopher. You want to back up and ask a really big question, or maybe start with a bigger picture point. And I think one of the points I want to start with is just kind of like a a foundational assumption of mine, and and that is that human beings are made for meaning. Um, we're, we're creatures who seek meaning. We want meaning. We want our lives to be meaningful. We want our work to be meaningful. Uh, we want our relationships to be meaningful. Um, and I think that's been true all throughout human history. I, I don't think that's something that's unique to our contemporary situation. I think some of the very first human beings, the earliest human beings, were creatures who wanted meaning in life. Um, and that's just a deep human impulse. It's a deep human desire. Uh, it's one that um, is inescapable. And as you were alluding to earlier, um, we seek ways to do that um, through various outlets in our lives to, to sort of have meaning and to want meaning and to crave meaning. Um, the reason that I wanted to sort of lay that as kind of our, our building block for the rest of this program is because it'll help us, I think, when we start talking about what nihilism is to uh, to understand that as kind of our, our beginning point, that human beings want meaning. Um, so now I want to do like a, a quick history of the world in about like, you know, two minutes, um, which is always going to be a danger. Um, yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> yeah, history of the world. Um, I, I really want to divide the history of the world really into kind of two ages, um, a, an earlier pre-modern age and a post-modern age. Um, we're, of course, living in a postmodern age, um, there, but there was a different kind of world in the pre-modern ancient and medieval era. And I think one of the ways that you can sort of distinguish between 
those two ages in the history of the world is that in the earlier age, in the pre-modern era, most people, most human beings, simply took it for granted that there was a kind of cosmological purpose to the universe. Um, and, you know, in... So just to clarify, yeah. what does cosmological mean? Yeah, great, great question. Um, it just means like an overarching purpose to the universe, to the way that history was unfolding, to the way that um, there, that life was happening on planet Earth. Um, so, so the word the word cosmos is like the word for the totality of all of of everything, um, beginning to end, all of history. And so, and so, human beings thought that. Um, there was a purpose. They thought there was a purpose behind things, and they thought that they could discern that purpose. They thought in this pre-modern world that they could figure it out. And for many of them, that purpose was connected to the intention of either the gods, if you were a, a polytheistic culture, or a single god, if you were a monotheistic tradition. Um, and so there was this notion that those gods or that god had a kind of transcendent and overarching purpose for everything in in the world for everything in that the human beings were going to experience and i think for the pre-modern people that was often a source of great comfort um, in times of distress it was often a thing that they would use to give explanations for for things that were distressful whether it was earthquakes or famines um, different kinds of trials that they would go through, they would always sort of uh, come back to the idea that their own lives, their own individual lives, had a kind of purpose, had a kind of meaning, because it was connected to a larger purpose, a bigger purpose that was part of all of human history. Um, so I think at a certain point, and, and scholars debate this, and I don't think for purposes of this show it's really important to get into those details, but um, somewhere uh, probably beginning in uh, the rise of modern science um, and through the, the Enlightenment, um, I think that gets lost, the, co- the idea that there is a cosmological purpose. So that modern transition era, just to, I, mean, I know you're debating, or it is debated, rather, when it started— what, but let's say about 200 years time work. Yeah. What, what, what so would you say like 1600s, 1800s? Yeah. About? Yeah. I okay. think, I think definitely 1600s to 1800s. Um, in, in my work in philosophy, we're thinking about figures starting as early as Descartes and then some of the others like uh, John Locke and George Barclay and David Hume, and then ultimately a big and really important German philosopher named Immanuel Kant, and then these lead to people like Nietzsche, who's, of course, a very familiar figure in relationship to nihilism. Um, but but all of these all of these figures are 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 in the midst of they're going through a major transition out of that pre-modern mindset and into the mindset that we have today. And I think the mindset that we have today, um, broadly speaking, especially in the West, but I think we've globalized it in a lot of in a lot of respects, is a mindset that just doesn't believe anymore that there is an overarching transcendent cosmic purpose behind the universe um, or behind life or behind human history. History's not going anywhere. Life's not going anywhere. So basically there's no reason for which the whole universe exists. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and, and a lot of that is at times tied to explicitly to atheism. Um, though, though not everyone who has this view is necessarily like uh, an atheist per se, but, but many atheists would, would take that position. They would say that since there is no God, the universe got here as an accident. Um, it's just been a long evolutionary process that's happened. No one's been governing it. No one's been guiding it. No one's minding the store, so to speak. And so here we are. We're human beings. We're on this planet. We crave meaning. We want meaning. We desire it deeply. It's built into our consciousness. But there isn't a big story um, that's unfolding in the history of, of the cosmos in the universe. It's just a grand accident that happened to have produced us, and here we are. And since we're all alone, and since there's nobody minding the store, and since we have this big desire, we have to kind of make the best of it in light of that. Now, I think that is the big sort of postmodern assumption that gives rise 
to what we might call nihilism. And that's, that's where I want to get into defining what nihilism is and, and, and how to think about it um, in, the, in the world that we live in today. But what I needed to help everybody understand is I needed that background assumption that the world we live in today is a world that we don't believe in any kind of overarching or transcendent purpose for where history's going, where life is going, where the universe is going. It's all big cosmic accident, and here we are. With, with that assumption, yeah, right? Yeah. It makes it feel like lo- that nihilism is the only logical conclusion. However, I believe that when you dive dive deep into nihilism, it is extremely disordered. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so let's talk about that. So and, and let's now let's get to your original question, which is what is nihilism and how, how should we think about it? Um, I think for a lot of my own life, I actually thought of nihilism as like a philosophical camp, like it's a view that someone would hold of the world. But I think more recently, I've actually come to believe that's not the best way to think about it. Um, I mean, if you if you look up even like the Wikipedia page on nihilism, um, you'll see that it's that defining it is kind of like trying to nail Jello to the wall. <laughs> it's really difficult, and I think the reason for that is because nihilism is really best characterized as a mood. It's a mood. It's almost a response, an attitude, or a posture to this deep-seated assumption that there is no purpose, okay? It's not the only response um, to this idea that there's no overarching purpose. Throughout human history, there have been other responses. One of the most uh, famous and perhaps even one of the most powerful, though not necessarily the most attractive, is is a response called Stoicism. Um, So the, the Stoics themselves would have thought, on the one hand, there is no overarching purpose. There's no big, huge purpose for everything in human history and life. But they weren't the kind of people who wanted to respond to that with despair. Um, they didn't respond with pessimism. And it's really the despair and pessimism that's, that's characteristic of nihilism. The Stoics just thought, well, what you do is you just buck up and take it. This is how reality is. Toughen up, you know, get a stiff upper lip. Um, become a hero uh, in the face of the insanity of the cosmos, that's what you do if you're a Stoic. And it, it honestly wouldn't surprise me if, if you have some of your own fellow officers who find themselves with a kind of Stoic response, actually. That's exactly where I was going to go. That is, that is so common uh, in, in police work, especially because of the, the, the calls that we respond to. This is something that a previous guest talked about the amount of critical incidents that we respond to is in, in a 30, it's a, he either said a 20 or a 30 year career is, um, I, I can't remember what the exact number is. The average person has two to three in his or her life. The average police officer has, I think like a thousand. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I've responded personally to all kinds of crazy stuff and I go tell my parents about it or go tell other people about it. And like, wow, that, that's wild. And I'm like, it was just another Tuesday. Like on yeah. July 4th, we had this, uh, we almost had a shootout over fireworks. Yeah. Two neighbors almost shot each other over fireworks. Yeah. And it's like, you know, but people don't think about that, right? Like, right. you know, you, and then, or you have calls that really impact you. Like, especially, and this is another thing that um, we've talked about kid stuff really gets to people. So when, yeah. when bad things happen to kids, um, I've personally talked about how, um, there was a sexual assault and I worked with a child and that was really affected me. Um, and so that, but it almost feels unnatural to just stop and say that that doesn't mean anything or, or that that shouldn't affect you because I think that it's natural that it should. Right. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, this is, this is exactly, you've just put your finger on one of the major criticisms that um, some people make of stoicism as a response to sort of the meaninglessness of things um, is that it it feels like you're denying an important aspect of your humanity, these emotional responses that we have to things that are deeply evil or deeply wicked. Um, The stoic says, hey, that's just life. You got to deal with it. Get tougher. Um, But there's something in us that says, no, wait, I I think I'm actually built in a way as a human being that I that I ought not to just suppress 
that response that I'm having to this to this really serious wickedness that I'm dealing with. And especially if you do, and this is another thing I've talked about, that if you continue so to suppress that that feeling, and you're not, I, I would argue, if you, if you're not actively involved in the body of Christ, then the way that you try to block that out a lot of times ends up being some kind of this, this cycle of using dopamine to, to get rid of it. Right. Um, or, or just to numb it. Um, I mean, and that can be alcohol, video games that heck, this is even why um, a lot of police officers have a lot of marriage issues because, um, fornication, the, the act in and of itself can cause a lot of dopamine, not just the, the, the intercourse act, but the act of doing that with, you know, someone else outside of your marriage does produce a lot of dopamine. So we, you know, we try to mask all these problems with these, you know, physical substances. But at the end, you know, at the end of the day, if you follow those to their end, I mean, I, I've seen plenty of you know, marriages get destroyed. I've seen plenty of officers have to go to uh, rehab for substance abuse. I've seen plenty of officers you know, lose their family because they've, they've, you know, they've messed it up and they you know, are now separated and don't see their kids except every other weekend. And you know, that's, that is not at all the kind of life that I want for anyone. And right. it's not a, it's not a, it's not an ordered life. It's not a good life. Yeah. Um, and so you, know, you get any more thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. I think that one of the dangers, and I think this is what you're pointing out, of trying to take the stoic response to this loss of overarching meaning is the danger of just basically not being able to, to do it, right? Not, not being able to pull yourself together, not being able to um, sort of survive all the things that you have to deal with on a, on a regular basis, or not being able to numb um, or turn off those those switches that are having these kinds of emotional, profound emotional responses to the things that you deal with on a day to day basis. I think that's right. So I think the other response now is nihilism. This is what we came to talk about. Um, and and nihilism, in effect, is just the mood or the response of despair or pessimism in the face of the meaninglessness of, or the lack of overarching purpose of, of history and of life and of the way that the universe is unfolding. And, um, and so one of the things I, I want to say is that I don't necessarily know as that people consciously or um, as a matter of conviction always think of themselves as a nihilist, right? Someone doesn't necessarily wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be a nihilist. Um, instead, I think people experience the pull of nihilism because of the conditions of the postmodern age. And I think that's really probably what many of, of your, you and your fellow officers are feeling in the, in the work environment. Um, as you talk about these repetitive cycles of crime, it's, it seems like just no way to ever break the cycle, nothing ever changes. Um, and it is that a, it's responding to that that leads to this kind of despair or pessimism that's really characteristic of a nihilistic mood, um, that nothing matters, right? If I, if I wanted to sum up nihilism in a, in a phrase, it would be that phrase, right? Nothing really matters. Nothing that I do matters. Um, so what difference does it make whether I help someone and do something kind for them or shoot them, right? Um, because... Because nothing matters in the end. So it's just a pure subjectivity, you know, right? There's no objective. I think it's even worse than pure subjectivity. I mean, I think it's it's giving up on the idea that there's any purpose to anything that I do whatsoever. So it's it's more to sort of use a um, a, a, a theme from you know some recent, relatively recent movies. Um, it's more like. Two Faces coin in the Batman Dark Knight series, right? It's, it's flip a coin, right? It's it's just randomness. Um, what difference does it make what I do? Because my actions aren't going to have any cosmic significance in the end. Um, and and so I think that's the mood of nihilism that that is characteristic of the time we're living in. And not just in police work. I think it's everywhere. I, th I see it in my students' lives. Um, they aren't. They don't know why they should be motivated. They don't understand 
what, what they're doing in terms of their life plans. Um, they don't often have goals because I don't think they really know or are assured that anything they're going to do matters. Does it have any significance? They're longing for significance themselves. And you know, it, uh, this is something else we talked about beforehand. It, I think that, um, the, the, the biblical book that talks about this a lot is Ecclesiastes. Um, I've been reading that a lot and actually, um, Side note, I'm working on doing a long-form episode, about 20 minutes, we're going to talk about, we're going to really explore Ecclesiastes, because I think it has a lot to say about about this. Um, but one of the things that I am, I'm in right now is what's called the tyranny of time, mm. right? Yeah. And so um, what that means is is that, um, you know, I, I quoted uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin in the previous episode, you know, Two things in life, death and taxes, right? Always going to happen. And so the, the the trap that we can fall in is believing that because we do the same thing over and over and that we're not making any change, nor will, even if we do make some kind of slight change, that change will not last, right? That's right. You know, we, we all die That's at right. the end of the day. Um, and all things on this earth will perish. Yeah. Then, you know, why... Why do we, why do we do them? Yeah, um, and so that's that's a huge trap. That is yeah. something that I know. You said that you see it in your students. Yeah. I've seen it in other officers. I've seen it in just the people I interact with. Yeah, uh, you know, even criminals. That you know, like why, why does it matter if I if I shoot somebody? It is what it is. Yeah. Um. Well, are there any? So you you've already mentioned a couple of philosophers that, um, like especially Nietzsche, that are really common. Um. My personal experience with uh, nihilism, I read one book by Anna Seegers, mm. who is kind of an abstract author. Um, she was a student of Franz Kafka, um, and Kafka is like the literary version of Nietzsche. He is sure. the, when you think of literature, and or you think of nihilistic literature, you think of Franz Kafka. He's, he's number one. And I, I hated it. And I remember reading Anna Seeger's, uh, I won't say what book it was. It's actually kind of an obscure one for uh, what most people think of with her. But, you know, she's a straight up nihilist. And you can, you feel almost like this despair, this like bleakness around you. And I'm like, you know, when I was reading the book, um, my, my thought was, you know, why should I even finish this? This is, this is ridiculous. All I'm doing is just reading about how nothing matters. And there's no, there's no, there's no point here. So, Dr. Barner, let's say that we're at that point. Let's say that, you know, we've been 15 years down police road and we arrest the same person over and over. We see the same crimes over and over. We've gotten to the point where I've decided this doesn't matter anymore. I don't like doing what I'm doing anymore. I don't feel like there's any purpose here. Why should I even continue? How do we start to turn away from that? Because we know it's a bad thing, right? How How do we start moving away yeah it's a great question and you know um i think the thing i want to preface my response um preface my response to that question with with a couple of caveats um i'm not a i'm not a psychologist um but i've uh i've spent uh a a good long while uh thinking about and reading quite a lot about just the complexity of the human psyche and so I, I want to say at the start, um, the answer that I'm about to give um, I, is going to be far oversimplified. I realize that you know, changing people's minds, changing the way they think, changing people's hearts, and even changing people's lives is an arduous and complicated task. And it, it, it requires a lot of resources that you have to bring to bear on a, on a particular person's circumstances. But I do want to say philosophically... Um, I think that probably the foundational thing that really has to change, and and this is why I started out framing the conversation the way that I did, is we have to have a recovery of the hope. And I want to use that word intentionally because I think it's, it's connected to some distinctly Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. We have to have a recovery of, of the hope that there is a bigger narrative. Okay? That is to say that there is a purpose. There is an overarching purpose. There's a transcendent purpose. 
Um, and, I, and I will say, unless you as a person or even as a community can, can bring yourself to a place where you can affirm that, um, or unless a society can bring itself to a place where it can affirm that there really is a transcendent purpose uh, to to the, to human history, to the universe, to to the to the fact that we're here. Apart from that, I think nihilism is inescapable. I think it's a gravity that's going to pull you in, and you'll never get out without recovering this idea that there is there is a hope for a larger purpose. Now. I, because I'm a Christian, and um, and because that's sort of where I'm coming from, I, I I can make a strong argument that I think Christianity actually offers the the strongest possible basis for such a hope. Um, but that but that hope that Christianity offers is rooted in the fundamental Christian conviction that Jesus Christ, God the Son, has risen from the dead. Um, I think if you if you don't have that as part of your system of thought, uh, if that's not part of how you see the world, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and that he's coming again in glory to judge the world, if you don't see that, if that's not part of your part of your package, I don't know how you can escape the despair. It's the, it is the only thing for me that, um, that enables me to escape the prospect of despair. And the reason for that is actually really simple. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is actually the thing that means that it makes my actions now different, right? Um, the things I do now aren't pointless because my day-to-day actions in life are ultimately drawn up into a larger story that's about what Christ has done in rising from the dead and what he's going to do in returning and making all things right. Um, and, and, and that takes, I mean, that takes faith to believe that. Um, I, I'll be the first person to admit that. Um, that also takes hope to trust that that's true. Um, but if you don't have something like that as part of your story of how you think the world is going and how you think human history is unfolding and the direction you think it has and the purpose you think it has, if it's not part of that package, um, then I don't think there is a way out for you. One of the terms that uh, Danny Jones brought up, he's one of the previous guests, is we start spiraling, right? Um, and it's, it seems like to me that nihilism is essentially the big spiral, yes. right? It is the it is the great it is the way in which you start just it's the black hole you're getting yes, sucked into. Exactly, black yeah. hole. That's the yeah. best way to put it. Yeah, uh, because you know, I, unfortunately, I I think that at the end of nihilism, at the end of let, let's follow nihilism all the way to the end, is this death. Yeah, it's nothingness. Right. right. Yeah, which is what the root word means. Yeah. <laughs> it just means really? nothingness. Yeah. yeah. It literally does. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was, uh, one of the things that, that Chesterton talks about in orthodoxy, I think, is that, um, so orthodoxy is one of the, Chesterton has a, has a uh, tendency to write either short books or long essays and no one really knows which one's which. Uh, so, Orthodoxy is a one of those kind of falls in, in, in that lane. One of the things that he, he brings up is the, the concept of suicide, right? And how suicide itself is not just, you think that it is just the destruction of oneself, right? So you, you think that if you commit suicide, then you are just, you're, you're getting rid of yourself but and no one else, right? But Suicide is actually the complete inverse of what God has done. God is the, the great creator. Mm-hmm. He creates, yeah, right? He's a life giver. Yes. And like, yeah. you know, in in the beginning, if you, you know, I believe if you translate it directly from Hebrew, it says like in the beginning when God created the heaven and the earth, mm-hmm. right? Um he he has created all of that's around us. Um when when one commits suicide because Man is the image of God, so there are, there are some things that the man can do that 
are not exactly, they're not to the same extent that God can do, but they're in the same lot. They're in that same lane. Right. Um, and suicide is, is the great inverse. It is not just the removal of oneself. Mm-hmm. It is the complete destruction of the entire universe mm-hmm. for one person. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, it's life denying and it's anti-creational. Well, I think with that, we're uh, going to take a break. And we're back. Well, Dr. Barnard, um, stepping away from what we just got done talking about, um, let's go back into nihilism, maybe um, some thoughts about studying it. Just, you know, you could expound a little bit more on that. Yeah. Well, I think one of the practical pieces of advice that I would give, just say, your listeners is that I don't necessarily recommend that you make it a habit of trying to dig deeply into studying nihilism. Um, if, if I'm right that nihilism is a kind of mood, it's a response, it's a tendency to be pessimistic or despair in one's life about the po- a possibility of meaning or the possibility of meaning in my life or the possibility of meaning in the cosmos, as, as we were saying earlier, if you, if you dive into that rabbit hole, it's a black hole that's just going to suck you down more. And, um, and so I don't necessarily recommend that, um, that people who are struggling or people who feel the pull of nihilism, that you go out and read more books on nihilism or you watch more movies that are nihilistic or you um, read more literature that's nihilistic. And there's a lot of it out there today um, because I think a lot of people who are movie producers feel the, the nihilistic pull of our cultural moment. I think a lot of writers of literature feel it. Um, and, and I've noticed this over my last 20 years of teaching college level. Um, and I, I have at times sort of dipped into some of that literature. Um, I do in one of my classes, I actually assign a very short uh, play uh, by Cormac McCarthy. Um, and the play is... Who's that? He's a, he's a Southern uh, author who's written um, a, a number of important works, and probably the most popular that actually got made into a movie was a, a work called No Country for Old Men. Um, and so Cormac McCarthy has this play called The Sunset Limited, and, and it, is a, it is a play that um, I read with my students because it so clearly and vividly presents a character who has fallen into the trap of nihilism. He's fallen into despair. He's fallen into this notion that his life has no meaning, and, and he's suicidal. Um, and that's really the, um, the, the sort of the focus of that particular play. Um, but if you're, if you're someone who's actually struggling with this in a real way, like you feel it in your, in your life, you feel it in your day-to-day work, um, I don't recommend that you go and read a bunch of this stuff because it really won't help you. Well, on top of that, you know, we physically see that a lot too. That is, you know, we, we respond to this. Well, that's thing I didn't realize about police work is you respond to a bunch of suicides yeah. um, or a lot of overdoses are suicides. And we got to talk about how many overdoses we have. Imagine half of those are suicides, and then we go to normal suicides, quote unquote normal suicides. You know, we were already exposed to people who have been despairing and then got to the end of it, right? Yeah. So we were yeah. already surrounded enough by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I think, so I think, you know, the, you earlier asked the question, "What do we do?" Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, I, I've already, I've already laid my cards on the table and, and told you that I think. The, the deep answer to what do we do about this is we have to have a faith perspective which tells us that there is an overarching purpose to where history is headed and that that overarching purpose is what gives our lives as individuals meaning because we participate in that larger purpose. And I think, you know, what I want to focus on for a moment is I want to focus on um, what the, the idea of participation in that larger purpose looks like. Um, because I think throughout human history, the way that human communities have tried to 
put into practice participation in a larger purpose is through rituals. Um, and so at the beginning of the podcast, you talked about the rituals that you have as part of the, the police brotherhood, um, where you have fallen heroes who, ha- who are remembered with their pictures and photographs on the wall, where you have um, y- even um, things that have been preserved uh, from your fallen fellow officers. Yeah, we do a, a, what's called a final call a lot. So if an officer dies and he's still working, um, they'll do they'll clear a side channel on the radio and then they'll do the, basically the a dispatcher will say that we will continue that this, this officer's watch. Right. Like that is, that, that is something that's, that's, I think almost universal for police departments. Yeah. yeah. I have a friend who's in, um, who's in the fire department. And of course, one of the deep rituals after nine 11 was that every year, so many fire departments climb the steps, right? They, they go to a stadium and they, they do all the flights of steps and to honor the fallen heroes from nine 11. And I think, I actually think that those ritual practices, um, that actually combats the the tendency towards nihilism, the tendency towards despair, and and part of the way that it combats that tendency is is simply um, by providing life with structure, right? A, a kind of, as you even put it, I think, a kind of religious structure. Um, it's it's a kind of practice that um, recenters a person. Um, it it helps remind a person of um, the sacrifices and the costs of others who have invested their lives in these ways, and I think even even when you can't necessarily make ultimate sense of some of those sacrifices, I think you can you can regather yourself emotionally when you um, when you have a sense of the sacrifices that others have made in the same line of work that you have. Um, and so I think those practices in a, in a police department are absolutely essential practices as a kind of participation in a larger meaning. Um, I think the other thing, though, we have to realize is that larger meaning is probably always going to be elusive. I think this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Um, we're finite creatures, um, and since we're finite creatures, we can't see the whole picture. Um, we can't see what's happening from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. And, and, and we're caught in the middle. Um, and I think being caught in the middle is, is part of what um, m- contributes to that f- sense of frustration that we sometimes have in finding meaning in our work. Um, but we, we have to remind ourselves of that. Part of what we have to remind ourselves is that, that we are limited in our ability to see the ultimate horizon of things. And since we can't see that, um, our lives have to move forward in a kind of faith, hope, and trust that the things that we are doing are participating in something larger and bigger than ourselves. At, at the end of the day, that is, and we talked about this with uh, Ken Palmer, that the liturgies that, you know, I'm an Anglican, I'm proud about it. Um, one of the, in the liturgies that I participate in help me recenter myself on, you know, the greater purpose in life and you know yeah. eventually knowing the understanding or knowing that when we see the face of the father yeah we'll understand yeah. right um you know, this is going back to what i said earlier we are we are almost like like foils right we, we don't get we, we're more than the animals we're the intercessor between the humans or the, not the humans the uh the, the universe humans and then there's god right yeah. we are we are the intercessor between them um and and so we we understand that there's some purpose, but we can't nail it down all the way, right? We're not able to 100% say, um, we're not able to 100% understand all of what's around us. But we know that there's something more. We know that, and we know that despite the rest of the universe not knowing that, right? A squirrel genuinely does not know nor cares to know about the squirrel's ultimate, you know, goal in life, ultimate yeah. purpose in life, yeah. right? Right. Um, Transitioning just a little bit. Can I say one more thing? Go, real go quick? ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, just about participation. I think I think another practice that's really important is telling stories. Um, I think that that one of the ways that we make meaning and that we create meaning out of sometimes what feels like a chaotic sequence of events or even a repetitious sequence of events is we have to take time out to to remind ourselves and to tell ourselves the stories. And, and that's not a personal thing. It's a communal thing. 
And so I think, you know, one thing that helps, especially in a setting like the setting that you and your, your, your fellow officers are working in, is taking time out to to narrate the stories of of people who have gone before you, um, of experiences that you've had, because um, because even just the knowledge that I am part of a shared story is one of the things that helps combat this tendency towards despair and towards towards nihilism. Yeah, and that's I would say that's practiced a lot, at least in my experience uh, with the departments that we uh, tell you know, the stories of one another. Yeah. Like I've got all kinds of crazy stories that I can go into. Yeah. There's another story that another officer and I are, are, are kind of known for really. And that is, you know, just this wild, crazy story. Long story short, we walked in on a hitman. Mm. but you know, telling those stories over and over, I, I think that is a, a good liturgical practice. And even, you know, that that's done inside church as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's we right. tell, all the stories that are in the scriptures, right? Right. And even on top of that. Right. Um, because uh, they become our stories. Yes. Because yeah. we're part of the same. That's right. Know, we, we were part of the body of Christ. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, or even on top of that, that's something I've, I've, I've tried to express also is that for the ancient times, police doesn't really exist, kind of. Like, the, it's there's the, the soldier who is also a warrior but is also kind of their version of a police officer. So there's no like real, the concept of police officer doesn't really come about um, 1600s or so. It's a modern concept. Yeah. Yeah. But there are actions that, you know, certain saints have taken before us that we can look to that maybe reflect into um, what police officers do. Right. I would say one of the, one of the people that I, like to look to is Daniel. So, you know, knowing that in face of all the, the physical trials and tribulations, you know, lion's den obviously is one of the big ones or knowing that even that he had to keep a, a physically fit body to continue to do what he was doing. Like, you know, the whole story about him um, sure. eating the, the good food yeah, and refusing the King's dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Trans, transposing that with like today, like, you know, we have all these temptations around us for to eat fast food or, you know, drink a bunch or whatever. Uh, and knowing that, you know, even in the smallest ways, when I like, when I eat something healthy or I count my calories or, you know, whatever, just to stay away from the, the decadence and I'm actually doing something good, right? Yeah. You know, this is yeah. actively participating yeah. in a good thing, right? Yeah. Um, you had more thoughts? Yeah, I think I mean I think all those practices you're describing are practices that that can help someone combat this pull that nihilism has that we've talked about. I think though that the central thing that has to be said here is that what sustains and nurtures those practices is the deep conviction that the universe does have a kind of overarching purpose. If you don't have that foundational building block in place, then you're not going to be motivated to, to do these good things that we're talking about. Um, and, and so I'm trying to make sure I'm clear on that point just for all your listeners yeah. so, that you, so that you don't get the impression that this is something that's, you know, kind of really easy to do. It's, it's really challenging. That, that, and yeah, you can't, uh, this is something else we've, we've talked about as well, that there are, you can't just gut stuff out and continue the practices around it like you you can't you cannot take a badge off of a police officer and tell him to still be a police officer like that that is that symbol in and of itself means so much like you know losing your badge is huge um or something else we've talked about is if there is someone that you know kills a police officer in, in line of duty that police officer's handcuffs go on that suspect um, because that you know that that is, means something. Your handcuffs mean something. That is you know, integral to your work. And um, but you you know you can't cut God out of your worldview. Do all the you know the good things like diet and exercise and tell stories and do, do X Y and Z. Those are expressions of of you hopefully being in the fullness of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. They're not they are not what make up the fullness of the body of Christ, yeah. right? Like that yeah. is not a, 
you, you can't just take Christ out and still be okay. Yeah, you, or, well, or or you you may not be able to in the long run. I mean, I think going back to our earlier conversation, yes, yes. Stoicism tries, right? So Stoicism tr- is the view that is the alternative to nihilism without God. Um, it's the view that says, hey, I don't need God in the picture, but I can still be a decent, good, hardworking, honest person and try to make sense of my life in a way that's meaningful, even though there's no ultimate meaning to it. Um, and, you know, there's a handful of people who can make that work for themselves over the course of their lives. I think that's harder for a police officer to make that kind of response work. And the reason I think it's harder is actually simple. A police officer has to confront evil and injustice in the world on a day-to-day basis. And when you have to confront that on a day-to-day basis in your work, I don't think it's so easy to just sort of... Um, sort of bracket the question of is there ultimate justice right in reality it is is there really going to be a day of reckoning is this all going somewhere um i think stoicism is really a view that can only be sustained over the long haul by someone who lives a relatively comfortable life and and doesn't ultimately have um have to confront evil and injustice in the world on a day-to-day basis i think that that is why when we have like so um, I don't know if you've ever been to a trial, but if you are a police officer, let's say you arrest someone or something really, 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 really bad, um, especially if it's against a kid, and you finally, you know, go through the case, go through all this uh, hearings, discovery, pre, post, whatever, and you finally see this the person sentenced. Um, like that is, that can you know be satisfying. That's a reflection of you know the good the good that you're doing. That, you know, that that it always doesn't happen, right? Right. You know, that, That's right. I know all kinds of people that have gotten off on on really terrible, heinous stuff, and that I think that when that doesn't happen, like you know, we we start despairing again. Yeah. And we can't we can't do that because you know at the end of the day, where our purpose is, and I hundred percent agree with you on this, is in you know the kingdom of God. You know, at, there is coming a day of reckoning, and we, you know we have to look towards that. Even though it, you know, in our temporal minds, may be how many thousands of hundreds or whatever years in front of us. Uh, yeah. But it, or, or not, or, or very importportantly, not in my lifetime. Right. Y- yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. In other words, I think that's the crisis for a lot of people. The crisis for a lot of people is, will I live to see it? Right, that that's the crisis in in my moment now. Will will I live to see there be some kind of reckoning or ultimate justice or cosmic justice? Will will I live to see that? Um, and I think if you're if you're um, the, the real the real tension for for someone is how do I live my life in a way that doesn't despair about justice altogether? Right on the one hand, that's that's really important for police work. You can't despair about seeking it. But on the other hand, how do I avoid just um, getting overworked about trying to achieve it? That I that I just start becoming Batman or something, right? That I start becoming a vigilante because I'm so sick of seeing the spiral and the lack of the lack of justice that I'm just going to start taking matters into my own hands and I'm gonna I'm gonna run over the whole system and make it street justice yeah, all the way, right? That's right. Like that yeah. is. That, that's another thing we've talked about. Career suicide is something that um, Danny Jones talked about. Doing something so bad that your career has to end. And sometimes cops get, get so frustrated with the same person over and over that they decide that, you know, yeah. he's going to teach him a lesson. Right. And then it wrecks his career. Right. And can't do that. Right. Yeah, and, but, but I think I'm, what I'm trying to say is I think that's an understandable human response on the part of a police officer who finds themselves in that situation because it is a frustrating situation, right? On the one hand, you want justice to be done, you want to see justice served, but on the and other hand, you're not seeing it being and served. you're not seeing it yeah. being served, and 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 yet, I think the thing that that has to come into the picture, and if and this is again, if it doesn't come into the picture, it's going to be really difficult for I think any law enforcement officer to avoid that pitfall of wanting to bring about justice in a kind of vigilante way, um, that the thing that has to be in place is a trust that there will be a day of reckoning, right? You have to trust that, um, that there is a kind of ultimate 
judgment, there is a kind of ultimate justice that God's going to bring about. And um, if you don't have that peace in place, I can totally understand why you would either be pulled in one of these two directions, right? Either towards vigilantism or towards nihilism, right? Either one. I can see it. Well, uh, Dr. Barnard, uh, we're getting close to the top of the hour here. Um, Do you have any parting words for us? Oh, I mean, I think probably since I'm on a podcast that's largely devoted to police officers, my my parting words is I appreciate what all of you do. Um, And I mean that, really. Um, I hope that I've tried to articulate, at least in some way, a kind of sympathetic understanding of the challenge, I think, that that you face. I think you've done a great job. Yeah, because I I do think it's a genuine challenge. I I honestly can't imagine the day-to-day burden. Um, it, It burdens me just to think about the kinds of things that officers have to deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis. And I do think that, that probably um, law enforcement officials feel the, the, the conditions of our postmodern world deeply, um, even if they don't have the philosophical vocabulary to articulate it. Um, and I think they probably struggle with some of the, some of the side effects of that of that feeling in their in their work constantly being pulled in these different directions that we've talked about and I think that's why it's so so important for I think officers who want to maintain their sanity um, in the midst of this to have sort of this larger transcendent focal point right and that that big story that you that you believe in with all your heart that God is ultimately going to bring everything into into a conclusion that will be a just conclusion, and you have to see your own actions as an officer participating in in that larger project that God has in has in view. But you also have to trust that He'll do it, even when it doesn't look like it's being done um, on a day to day basis. And that's hard. That's a that's a hard task. Like it's a it's a super hard task because it requires all kinds of levels of self-discipline and I think that's why those rituals of participation are so important because that re-centers you as, as a law enforcement officer on a regular basis and reminds you of, of what kind of story you're participating in. Well, thank you Dr. Barnard. It was thank just you. a pleasure to have you on. Remember if you have any questions, you can email remainingsanepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's the remainingsanepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at Twitter at remaining sane pc have a blessed rest of your day